Welcome to Colonia Cast episode 12. We've got a really exciting episode lined up for you. I'm just going to get our, our pleasantries out of the way here real quick. Um, thank you to the Turtle Room uh, for, for sponsoring this show. Uh, and uh, they've been really generous with us, giving us some kind of startup resources for this uh, and, and really sort of believing in, in, in us to take this and make this something cool. So uh, thank, thanks to the people over there. You can, you can visit them at theturtleroom.org uh, and find everything there. So today, uh, and we're also working on some other partnerships that we should be announcing soon uh, and making our student uh, Colonia Cast Fund. So that, that's something to look forward to. So today we're going to be talking about a really interesting group of turtles. I think for lack of a better term, the, I guess, subfamily Kellinae is kind of the topic of, of today. Uh, we've got Stefan Etmar from Austria on. Uh, Stefan is uh, kind of the authority on these at this point. He wrote the book on, on <laughs> misoclemmies, the toad-headed turtles. Um, he's also a member of the IUCN Tortoise and Freshwater Turtle Specialist Group. Uh, and conducted his master's work on the kind of home range of twist neck turtles and total chelid diversity within French Guiana. Uh, he's done an incredible amount of things, uh, a really extensive resume, and, and we're really excited to, to talk uh, to Stefan today and, and learn some stuff about this, I think, pretty underrepresented uh, and, and not frequently talked about group of, of turtles. So thanks for coming on, Stefan. Hi, guys. Thanks for coming on. All right, do we want to get into the questions or? Let's go, yeah. All right, so we always we always start them off this way. It's a bit of a cliche question, but why turtles? Like, what got you interested in turtles? Well, um, I'm a 90s kid, so of course I have to tell the story about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles being my favorite cartoon on, on TV, and, and therefore I like turtles. But, well, um, yeah, it's, it's maybe part of this, but actually um, my family was always very interested in animals, and um, my, my grandfather used to take me to, like, uh, fish trade shows and um, our... For a while, our neighbor had his own um, fish room where I would spend some time and, and also, um, yeah, get some first experience with aquariums, fish keeping and stuff. And um, when I was like 10 or 12 years old, um, one, of my, yeah, one of my best friends, he got a little aquarium with uh, radiard sliders and I said, Mom, I want that too. I already had an aquarium at that point, but... Uh, we never thought about getting a turtle in there and yeah then that was the point when i got the first two red eared sliders in there and from then on yeah, the number only grew of, of turtles in in my aquariums and in my home yeah so that that was the start that's actually really interesting i, I like how every one of these origin stories of everybody we have on the podcast involves a red eared slider like it brings into questions like what if like the trade with red-eared sliders really helped spark so many people's interests in it because i mean i had red-eared sliders when i was younger and i think several other people on here have had them at some point yeah yeah you know nowadays they are of course red-eared sliders can't be imported into the european union anymore but um generally small turtles have been a staple in the, in the pet shop um offer whatever they had on, on live animals uh, for for decades now 
And uh, yeah, I mean, of course, it created huge ecological problems, um, also animal welfare problems. But of, yeah, just like you said, many people started like that and then they became educators or also scientists or um, conservationists for that reason. So yeah, it's not all that bad, but of course, yeah, I, I guess the downside kind of is, is, is way worse than, than the good things. But yeah, I mean, maybe with better suited colonians for pet keeping, we still would be able to recruit um, turtle nerds like us and, and not harm the environment that much. But yeah, that's just an assumption. Yeah. Well, I think that as a gateway animal, it, you know, it, it's po it has positive impacts. And I think sometimes ecologically, it, it, you have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis in, in terms of their impacts. But there's certainly certain things. Like down here, I do kind of research on the western pond turtles, the southwestern pond turtles here. And I've I spent a, months kind of surveying out there. And, and we use some... I guess statistical tests to look at if there is correlation between habitat sliders use and the pond turtles use and we just kind of came to the conclusion based on the data that we had that there doesn't appear to be much overlap in the habitat they use so there might be some partitioning going on now there's other things that happen within the water column and everything that you can't necessarily account for uh but but yeah at least here it seems like the pond turtles actually sort of dominate yesterday i saw a pond turtle beating up on a slider uh so yeah but it's interesting for sure, but I, I would say that, you know, the way that a lot of people get into turtles uh, is a lot of them through the, the, the slider world, but also I think for me, it was kind of more through the books and reading about kind of the diversity. Um, and, and that's certainly one that we've heard before, but I think that, yeah, you know, the species that are really kind of unique and, and not really talked about frequently are the ones that kind of attract a lot of people as well. And maybe more of a healthy way, I guess, because, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, but uh, I guess that's sort of a good gateway into, I guess, talking about sort of your specialty, Stefan, uh, and, and the, the mesoclemmies. So what kind of work have you done and, and what species do you kind of focus on in, in both research, I guess, kind of predominantly research wise? What kind of stuff have you have you done? Yeah, well, um, as you already mentioned uh, in the beginning, I did my master's uh, on, on keelids in French Guyana. And um, yeah, I chose the twist neck turtle because it's also basically um, pet trade induced because twist neck turtles are a staple. Um, they are offered at, at reptile shops quite frequently um, in America much more than in Europe. In Europe in the last few years, I haven't seen a lot imported, but they still are. Um, but it's a, it's a turtle that many people maybe know and, and you know some of the collectors that want to have it all, they have some in their uh, collections, but uh, almost nobody really bred them or nobody breeds them on a regular basis. And so I thought, man, um, the University of Vienna, where I studied, um, they have regular field courses in French Guiana because, um, yeah, they, they do, um, yeah, mostly um, acoustic communication studies with uh, anurans, so with, um, yeah, um, poison dart frogs. And uh, so I could use their uh, infrastructure 
for, for my studies and I also helped them with the frog herping. And yeah, um, parallel to that, I, I thought maybe I can get some insights how these animals live and, and maybe it, it's some help for recreating the, the necessary habitats to, to actually breed them. And that worked out quite well, I guess. And um, yeah, with mesoclemmies, with toad-headed turtles, um, I started also off with uh, some yeah, um, now they are called Mesoclemis vermuthii, but um, I, I must admit I still refer to them as Raniceps because I, I have, yeah, I, I keep these since 2005, 2005, yeah. And um, yeah, that's what I called them all the time. So I'm not used to, to giving them a new name, but yeah, I got them from a close friend and uh, he said, these are turtles nobody really works with. You start your, um, at that time, I just started my, my studies in biology. And uh, he said, it's probably a good idea to, to work with these. And that's what I did. And it was a excellent idea. <laughs> so I, I keep these at home. I breed these at home. Um, I used some data from my keeping experiences for my thesis. And yeah, unfortunately, I wasn't able to work with Raniceps vermuthii in the field yet, but um, I found some closely related um, Mesoclemis nasuta in French Guiana. And so I could get a better understanding how I should keep my toad headed um, at home, for example. So for me, it's always important to have a mix from um, taking the uh, experiences you make in the field, translate them to your uh, keeping and breeding um, and other way around. It's good to know the animals from uh, ex situ keeping because then you will notice differences in behavior that could actually lead you to new insights or new ways to find them uh, in the field. And also, of course, for taxonomy, it's really important that you can take your time look at the animals closely, look how they behave, um, take a look at reproduction. And, and yeah, so this is, uh, it's closely connected for me, everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, um, for example, um, you know, toad-headed turtles, they are easily confused in the field. Yeah. Um, I, at the, in the early 2000 and 2010s, I saw some field notes with descriptions of hatchlings of toad-headed turtles. And the researchers said, yeah, well, we present the first hatchling of like uh, Mesoclemis giba um, from Peru or what it was. And then I looked at it and I said, no, that's not a Peruvian giba, that's a Peruvian Mesoclemis raniceps or vermuthii. So I, I could help out these people a little bit just by knowing what the, what the hatchlings look like. Yeah. And also nowadays we have the discussion with Mesoclemis heliostema um, and Mesoclemis raniceps and Mesoclemis vermuthii and the hatchlings look totally different. So these are different species, but um, of course you can still argue which name should refer to which animal. Yeah, that's, that's another question here. Yeah, so this is basically what I do um, as uh, on, on the scientific side and also on the hobbyist side. Um, I, I work with mostly South American side neck turtles. 
Um, but I also um, have some um, Frynops, uh, so the large ones, the large side necks from South America and some Asian turtles. And yeah, my love and first, on, on second side actually, were our uh, Claudius angustatus. So the, I think in English it's uh, uh, narrow bridged musk turtles. So um, yeah, I, I, I never wanted to go into keeping Kinosternids that much. They were never of interest to me, but then I got my hands on a hatchling one day and yeah, from that day, it chewed its way right into my heart. So uh, now I'm breeding these as well. And it's a really fun species to work with because they, yeah, they, they can do so many different things like estivate or um, they can look into like different directions. They independently move their eyes and stuff. And yeah, there are clowns. Every time I walk in front of the aquarium, there's something going on and they follow me closely. And yeah, just a charismatic species. I want, don't want to miss working with these. Yeah. I don't know if that's already a little much of me babbling around. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a it's a good preface for kind of all the things we're going to sort of dabble in here or or at least some of them uh if when with our times but I guess we want to maybe take a step back to um you you talked about doing work with platemis uh, for your for your thesis, or I, I know that you've kind of you've published on them before with the home range. I'm just curious, kind of what you learned there. That's that's another group of turtles that's sort of within that that Kellenay that's mm -hmm. sort of closely related to toadheads, but another one that's sort of not you know acknowledged a lot. Um, but yeah, just or sort of what did you learn about them? What are some interesting things about uh, twist neck turtles that that you? Yeah. Um... The, the most surprising thing, I think, is that I learned that they are pretty terrestrial. You know, um, you usually think of side neck turtles as basically aquatic species. Uh, people keep them in aquariums and, and uh, they are highly aquatic, of course. Um, basically, you also think of chelids as animals that can only feed underwater. And then you have twist neck turtles and um, yeah, I basically stumbled upon them right in the middle of the forest most of the time when I uh, followed them with my radio tracking device. And um, yeah, they, they spend a lot of time on land. They uh, don't move much when there's not any rain coming down. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting that they seem to all, somehow also to be able to um, feed on land even. Um, yeah, I was, um, I, I got an interesting email a few years ago by a German researcher who uh, made an observation where a twist neck turtle was eating uh, the tadpoles out of a foam nest of a frog species on land. And yeah, our theory was that maybe um, the the foam is something like loop, so the turtles can swallow it easy because usually they they use suction feeding, so they just open their mouth. Sorry, there's the camera. <laughs> they open their mouth real quick, and therefore the the food gets sucked in. And and platemis also they prefer like small food items like rainworms and stuff like this, and um, they they don't really chew something off from from their food. 
and uh, yeah that was that's very peculiar about them so um yeah i have prepared some slides for uh, a talk uh, that i held at a german turtle conference a few weeks ago and um yeah if you want to see them i can show you where i found uh, the twist neck turtles there if you like yeah go ahead let's do it yeah, so sure. be cool. let's let's try the screen sharing here yeah i want to do it on screen too yeah these are fascinating turtles i think that yeah here we go cool ah now you see it awesome yes. okay yeah so i i don't give you the, the full tour basically but um this is where i worked uh yep so this is french guyana in the northeast of south america and in the middle of french guyana there's the nurag reserve and uh what you see here is the the blue thing is the the river and uh here is a camp where we stayed at and the camp is only um reachable via helicopter or with a boat so there's no cars there um no electricity or let's say no connection to electricity from from the public grid so everything is solar powered and the red lines are trails that are marked for scientists to use for their work and uh the yellow and orange areas are the the home ranges of the the twist neck turtles um, that i monitored with uh, radio telemetry equipment and um i don't know if this is easily visible on the screen but the darker the area is um the more steep the terrain is so here in the white area this is like a swamp and here the dark area this is like a small hill and so the turtles moved from swamp up the hill. And here, this is also funny, the turtle P3 usually lived there where you have a small uh, forest stream going into the river. And at one point it just walked a few hundred meters and walked back on one day for whichever reason. So they're really funny animals. <laughs> and yeah, so this is the the habitat types you see there so it's river it's a forest uh, stream but this is not where the animals are this is not where where you find twist neck turtles um usually you find them in situations like this so this is uh the the researchers from the university of vienna they created small pools where they would study um poison dart frogs and the twist neck turtles, um, they use those pools because they knew that there are tadpoles in there and then they fed on the tadpoles that the scientists would have initially used for their research. But that uh, that way I got more animals to follow around. And yeah, this was the initial setup with the duct tape. Um, I um, The problem was since uh, the, the, the research um, station is, is not easy, to reach, uh, we didn't have our two component um, glue available for a few days. So this was the first few days, but duct tape is great. Um, afterwards, it looked like this, a little bit more professional. And um, yeah, after the, the study, of course, everything was removed again. So, and um, then let me show you. Yeah, so this is how you initially find them. Uh, when there's rain, 
the turtles will come out. Doesn't matter if it's day or night. Uh, the most important thing is that there is some form of precipitation um, and then the turtles move from one pond to the next one or two, they move to swampy areas because they want to um, yeah, go and, and, and feed there and also they, they mate in the water. So that's what, what they do when they're active. But if there's no rainfall, this is how you find them only with the radio telemetry set because if you walk through the forest and you just look at, at trees and twigs then you don't see the turtle but here this is the the dorsal growth of the of the turtle okay so they're really buried and they stay like this when when it's dry when there's no rain they stay like this for days um wait i'll think i have a mark yeah. No, I, 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 you know, since uh, GPS signals in the forest are rather weak um, due to disturbing to disturbance of the the closed canopy, um, I had to kind of use a marker to see to determine the whether the turtle had actually moved or not. So, um, yeah, usually uh, I put some duct tape there or some some sort of like a red piece of, of tape or whatever and so I saw if the turtle actually moved or not and yeah this is also nice I only found the turtle because of the radio telemetry transmitter and yeah then you have to dig it out to see if it's still there so yeah it, it was really interesting sometimes they, they were hidden for days I'm I also noticed in in my keeping experiences that um, they don't uh, feed too often, so it's it's really okay to feed adults once or twice per week. Um, the the smaller ones, the juveniles, they are a little bit better off if you f uh, yeah, feed them like once every day, but only a limited amount of, of food because they will grow really fast. Yeah, so I hope you you like that um inside and into their habitat so yeah this is the observation where they use this is these are the frogs and they build a nest made out of foam and the turtle they it, it ate the tadpoles in there and it seems like it used the foam to to make them yeah go down their throat yeah so if you want to keep twist necks you can do it in an aquarium, but not in a large aquarium like this here. I don't know if it's visible, but there's a small twistneck turtle here. Because just because you find caimans in in nature as well, where the twistnecks are, um, it doesn't mean that they are always in the water. So you do need to have a giant land area. And, and for example, at home, my land air, or let's say the, the whole terrarium looks like this. It's a uh, large plastic container just like those turtle tubs you have in America and here I have a small water basin it's deep enough for them to mate in and of course to to soak and everything but the rest is basically jungle and they hide below the cork bark all the time or under plants and, and stuff like this so this is probably what what's working best for them and um, a few years ago you know I was in French Guyana back in 2010 so um, I started telling friends of mine what the 
what their habitat looks like and uh, two or three of them they really started keeping snakes like this as well and they have pretty good breeding results with two or three clutches per year although you know one clutch is only like one or two eggs per clutch usually only one one egg per clutch so you can't really mass produce the species but um it works way better if you keep them terrarium style and, and not like fully aquatic is there a certain ratio of like males to females that you find works best or like do you keep them uh individually or uh to be honest i think best keeping practices are keeping them in individual um tanks or, or uh, terrariums because they are not aggressive towards each other but they don't really like each other so um in a setup like this i do have two females but each female has her own water basin so one basin is here and the other one is somewhere there and they always are apart and when i feed them i have to set them up in one basin each so they don't compete for food and since i do that uh both females lay eggs um and i i have tried um a similar setup but with only one water basis water basin that is larger and when i had two females in there even though the base area is the same yeah it's the same type of plastic top um only one female would reproduce so i guess it's a matter of dominance and yeah i guess you can keep a male in there as well if it's large enough but usually if, I think I, I want to reduce stress and I think that they don't meet in nature that often. So I keep uh, males and females separate and I only introduce the males to the females every once in a while, like every, every few months. And, but then, then sometimes I introduce like two males and two females in, in one top because then I try to create some competition among the males to to ensure fertility rate and then after two days everybody goes separate ways again that's awesome that this looks this is amazing some of the photos and, and the field work seems like incredible out there um yeah it's pretty fascinating they're beautiful animals i i remember reading somewhere too that they, they've been documented with triploidy so like as opposed to two sets of homologous chromosomes, you've got three, like a, a, an extra chromosome for each, I guess, chromosome. <laughs> it's a three sets on, on yeah, each yeah. Other area. So I don't know well, if, you, if there's been any research. I don't know if there's been any more research with that or what, if you know anything more about that? Uh, I think there has been some recent research regarding sex chromosomes um, and, and twist necks, but... Um, to be honest, I'm I'm more of a practical guy, and and since it doesn't really affect the the, the keeping or the ecology, at least I think so. I, I didn't really dive deep into that, and also because you know the University of Vienna, they or at least the group that I worked with, um, yeah, we we didn't really focus on that, and we also didn't take any um, blood samples or tissue samples, so. I can't really say if the the animals that I studied are are triploid or not. So yeah, it, it's interesting that it's only known from from twist necks. I think no 
turtle species else um, has recorded triploidy. Um, but yeah, it, it's also one of the peculiarities where I, where I say it's fun to work with, with chelates in general because there's so much to learn from them and, and so much unknown that you can still find out something Yes, compared yeah. to other animals, yeah. I found the, the feeding mechanism like topic pretty interesting. The fact that they, they can feed on those those foam egg masses on land well because you you seemed under the impression that they were using that as like a lubricant almost that they still require something. They they can't just consume like the tadpoles or whatever on, on their own. They require like water or something to to well swallow it with. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, um, chelids in general, their hyoid bones um, are constructed in a way that they can't really move their tongue or something. So, um, mechanism. yeah, so so all of them do that suction feeding. And, and I tried to mess around with my twist necks a little bit and, and offer um, different um, types of food in water and on land. And they usually just take what they get and jump into the water and, and eat it there. So uh, I don't know if this is like uh, the observation that this is specimen fed on land is a common thing or if it's only that population or even only that that one specimen that does it. I mean, yeah, that's that's pretty similar to uh, several like, aquatic species here is they'll come, some of them will leave the water if, and like some even snapping turtles will feed on uh, goose eggs and things outside the shore, but they run back to the water to actually swallow them. It's not mm -hmm. like a true mm -hmm. terrestrial species, like a like box turtles, which they can feed on land and they do not require uh, any sort, any like water or anything. They they have the structure to swallow it on their own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, incidentally, there's also a um, group of scientists at the University of Vienna. They are more the anatomy guys and not the, the ecology guys. And um, they studied, um, yeah, turtle tongues and, and turtle hyoid apparatus um, to determine which one is the like evolutionary newer uh, thing. And I think they what they um, came up with is the theory that the more um, flexible the tongue is, or the the better the uh, the ability to feed on land, the evolutionary newer is the the lineage or something like this. So basically, tortoises, they they have a more um, complex feeding mechanism than than uh, most aquatic turtles. I think that's their theory. And yeah, they they did some super cool um, hyperspeed X-ray. Um, videos with matamatas where they documented how they in ingest their their prey and, and you see the fish darting into the back of the their throat and then you know they have a really uh like three times the size of their regular size um of their throats and then they expel the water out of their throat and then the fish goes back and forth in the throat until all the water is gone and then the turtle starts really swallowing the fish uh, yeah, I think they were somewhere online on the internet, um, but it's also like 10 or 12 years ago, so I don't know if they're still there, but there were cool videos. That's interesting. I think, uh, I mean, I don't know, admittedly, I don't know much about this uh, species or this group, but um, 
I think they the males they also squirt water out of their nostrils as a, like an aggressive mechanism during copulation. Is that true? Yeah, I mean that's you know, probably the case in 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 many aquatic uh, turtles and also in chelids oh, right. because you know when they they uh, chew water. Yeah. Uh, to to make water go in and out of their mouth, and there they kind of smell what's in the water. They take up hormones or whatever they they smell, and therefore also the yeah the water can go out of their noses. Yeah, that's that's quite common, I think. Yeah. Maybe we can. So now I maybe we can kind of transition into the mesoclemmies. Uh, and get right. into that. I'm just I'm getting antsy for that. But uh, so yes. I'm I'm curious, kind of in the process of writing your book on on toad-headed turtles, kind of what are the more interesting things you've learned about them? And maybe so I think it's a group of uh, eleven species at this point because there was one that was recently described. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's certain ones that I think get mentioned more than others. But in terms of like the tuberculate species, the I think the Cerrado, Perplexa, the Cerrado species, Hoag's, I think I, I, maybe Brazilian or Hoag's Cygnac and, and Vanderhege are all species that like most people are not going to know. So maybe you could kind of focus on those. But yeah, just overall, what are some of the more interesting things about the genus as a whole and those particular types, yeah. I guess? So yeah, when, when I um, started working with toadhead turtles, um, I tried to gather as much literature as, as possible to learn maybe from breeding reports and, and uh, or maybe get some um, yeah, ecological data to, to improve my, my keeping conditions. And I really didn't find a lot, you know, um, for I don't know how many decades, the Peter Pritchard's book, uh, The Turtles of Venezuela, was the only real reference uh, for natural history of, of, of basically South American chelids in general. Um, and this is where I drew most information from. And I couldn't really believe, I mean, the book is as old as I am. So it's it was written in 1984. And um, so at, at some point I just got frustrated that there's nothing around and you know, when I started following scientific publications, I noticed there's stuff published about Asian turtles, uh, about the large South American species, uh, about North American species, but nothing really was done with, with uh, toad heads. And um, even though when I finished my, um, my thesis and um, it was clear to me that I wouldn't work um, in in science because you know when I, I stopped uh, at university, uh, I graduated, and then I worked at a pet store for seven years, and now I work as a, a technical author and and I write basically um, operation manuals. But um, then I just thought, okay, if nobody does it, then I will do it, and and then I started collecting material for for the book, and then. Yeah, I, I wanted to start with only uh, yeah, Mesoclemis nasuta and Raniceps because I worked with these and I had more experience and I was confident enough that I could say, okay, I can tell something new in, in, in a book about these. But then, as you said, uh, 
all the other Toadhead turtles, they are rather unknown as well. So I thought, okay, maybe let's just compile what's there. Um, in Pritchard's book, not every Toadhead species is uh, actually featured. So I thought, all right, um, I'll do that. Uh, yeah, and then I started compiling information, writing stuff, and uh, it took me, I don't know how long, like 10 years until everything was done. And the book is um, not really thick compared to how much time I spent uh, researching uh, and, and, and yeah, going through literature, but it's just that not that much available and I had to do it um, in addition to what I do else. And yeah, that was was basically the process how, how I published it. And um, yeah, the, um, then I really, you know, the Amazonian toadheads, they were my, the, the first ones that I worked with. And so I knew a lot about these. And when I wrote the book, then I um, kind of recognized that, hey, with the South, South American species, not a lot is done either. So uh, Van der Hegei are the, the most Southern species. They occur in um, Argentina, Southern Brazil, um, in, in Paraguay. I was in Paraguay in 2012. Unfortunately, we didn't find any there, but at least I could get an idea what their habitat looks like. And then um, I was invited by some Brazilian researchers to do the, you know, there's these uh, species accounts from the TFTSG. The, it's um, conservation biology of, of the colonians or something like this. You know, it's like a lexicon of, uh, of turtle species. Species and like you click on the links and yeah, yeah. right. And they have like everything in one account, and and we did that with Van der Hegei, and it was interesting to see when the other collaborators shared their pictures that um, the Brazilian Van der Hegei look totally different than the Paraguayan ones. So um, I didn't write a lot about it in the book because I didn't do any scientific uh, study on this. So I didn't sample anything. There's no DNA to confirm that, but I wouldn't be surprised if um, Van der Hegei would be split up in the future because I think in Brazil, there's a lot of diversity still to be dis discovered. And uh, yeah, the animals are referred to as Van der Hegei only because there is not something else to call them. Um, so that was really interesting um, when I wrote the book. And yeah, then I also stumbled um, across the um, perplex toad-headed turtle or the Cerrado toad-headed turtle, the Mesoclamus perplexa, was only, like only, it's already like 15 years ago that it was described, but still it's one of the more recently described species. And um, it's a toad-headed turtle that doesn't occur in, in rainforest. It occurs in, in mountain streams, and that's also really different. It's a totally different uh, ecosystem that they use. And um, when I did research for the book, then I found out that there are records of, of mountain sidenecks or whatever you want to call them uh, from mountain ranges that are a thousand kilometers apart. So like a, f a few hundred miles. So how do these uh, 
get there. So how are they related? Um, that that was also interesting. And yeah, to date, there's no publication about that. But um, I wouldn't be surprised if there are either more species to be described or if more work is done, that it's found out that um, Perplexa is probably spread out way more across the Brazilian east or northeast where there's not rainforest cover but yeah Cerrado which is like a dry region where they only have limited water areas and stuff like this and um, yeah I don't know if, if you want to see these pictures but I brought some as well because I was yeah. in Brazil in 2020 2020 yeah right before corona hit and um, it was really interesting to see that so I'm yeah I'm still sharing my screen right yeah, yeah, we yeah. can see it. Yeah. So I was um, in Chapada Diamantina National Park. Um, it's in in Bahia, which is yeah one of the eastern Brazilian states. And this is what it looks like. There's also forest cover, but it's deciduous forest. Um, it's um, very dry from time to time. You know, there's it's, a. It's a little grainy on my end. I don't know if that's just me. I just want to make sure yeah maybe if you just want to reload real quick it might just be a little s slow okay. sorry about that yeah no 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 problem let's see what it does i have a small indicator for network connection it's, and it says 10 out of 10 so i don't know okay maybe it's another issue is now it better uh maybe just try I, I, don't, I don't think a screen recording can get any better than that ah <laughs> yeah it's, it's probably I mean, it's grainy but the picture will work like i mean yeah 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 it's, it's good okay. we don't need to waste time trying to figure it out i think it's fine yeah. okay yeah what, what you can get from this picture is um basically it's a hilly area there's a lot of small mountains like tabletop mountains and the there's forest but it's a really dry forest and so it's a different type of habitat from the uh, yeah central Amazonian species, and um, I hope that picture will load. My computer is really old. Yeah, so there we go. Yeah, here in the forest, it's also not like the the largest rivers. It's um, calm waters. It's it's not flowing water, and this is what where the turtles are and yeah this is what they look like so uh chapada diamantina is not uh, like an officially registered um population of of um mesoclamus perplexa but the toad heads they have there they really look uh similar um, they are more elongated there are i mean this is probably a juvenile it's not fully adult yet but uh, they don't get as large as the, uh, the Amazonian ones, like Mesoclamus nasuta. They get beasts of 30, 35 centimeters uh, carapace length. Uh, I fear you have to translate that to inches. <laughs> I think no, I it's think, like... I think uh, any of us who spend enough time looking at the dimensions and morphometrics of turtles can can get an idea of that. But Okay, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, they are a little bit more elongated. Their head is not uh, as broad as in other um, mesoclamys. So they are kind of distinct. And, and um, 
here you see they have a real pointed snout. Not all toadhead uh, turtles have that. Oh yeah, and there, there's the oh, yeah, it's now. things again. Oh, so uh, yeah, they are they are interesting, and, and besides that, nothing much is known about them. I did some snorkeling in those streams. I mean, of course, not in the waterfall, but below, and they have tons of snails there, tons of uh, shrimp. Uh, I don't think that they actually catch fish, but of course, if fish died and they eat carrion, and um, yeah, that's. Um, I, I tried to give as much information as possible in the book, but unfortunately, unfortunately, this um, trip was after the book was published, because yeah, sometimes you know you, you dig into a rabbit hole and then you go deeper and you want to know more, and so it was the case when I wrote the book. I said, okay, I want to really see how they do in nature, and yeah, the, this trip was the result of that. Yes, that's fascinating. You mentioned you see a lot of snails and things. What what specifically are they feeding on? Like, uh, are they feeding on the snails? And yeah, I would assume so. I mean, my toadheads they they go nuts for for all kind of aquatic snails. So apple snails are in high favor. Um, even, you know, there's these small snails in aquariums. They are very elongated. And they have a really hard shell. Sometimes they even crush these. And, uh, yeah, I think crustaceans and, and snails are the main feeding items uh, for toadhead tur turtles um, because they are available where these are. So I saw them in French Guiana. I saw snails and shrimp in, in Brazil when I was in the Rio Negro. Um, I saw them in Paraguay. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's what they, they eat. And also, you know, they are kind of megacephalics, just like the yeah, map turtles. Good. Yeah, that's map turtles do eat clams and, and snails as well. So, yeah. Do they have a, this is kind of like a random question, but are like the alveolar surfaces inside the mouth, are they like broadened or expanded? Like are the the crushing surfaces expanded inside the mouths, like yeah, I mean probably not as much like in diamondback turtles, but uh, they still are broad enough to really get enough surface to to crush a, a shell of a snail or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's not like cutting scissors or something that you see in sliders or in cooters, but it's really like more crushing, crushing area. Oh, yeah, that's something I wanted to know. That's really cool. The A lot of the species descriptions have been based a, a lot of different things, and I think it's good. There's, there's a lot of – the head width has been used in the past to distinguish between species. I think that that mm -hmm. is a pretty uh, – definitely subject to a lot of different – I mean, it, it could be allometric with age and individual variation. Do you think that that's a good metric for – you, 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 I guess you've seen a lot of them. Is that something that's variable within species or can you really demarcate different groups based on head width? Mm, yeah, I think it's not easy enough to take a random specimen and compare it to another random specimen and then say, oh, head width is different. You have to really uh, compare um, ontogen ontogenetical differences. So you have to compare babies with babies and you have to compare adults with adults, and then you see that there are differences. Um, I also have a presentation here. 
where you can see that. So um, this is a paper from 2012. I mean, N8 and 14 is not a lot, but you can see some differences between the different uh, toad-headed turtles here. The circles, they are Mesoclemis giba, so they have small heads and even the babies have narrow heads. So that's, that's a different thing when you look at them as babies. And the other ones, they are definitely broad-headed. So on a like sub-generic um, level, you probably can distinguish just like with map turtles, you know, you have the sawback species that are narrow-headed and then you have the broad-headed species like your barbers maps turtles and or the um, perlances and stuff. And then you have intermediate ones um, that can go either way. And with mesoclamys, I think it's the same. Uh, you have some intermediate species just like Vandahegii or um, also in, in most cases tuberculato, they don't have that really broad heads, but when you look at Nasuta, Oraniceps, Heliostema, they just have massive heads and they already have that as a baby. So if you look at that slide here, uh, that's Nasuta. I mean, this is almost comical how, how broad the head is. And this is a hatchling Nasuta. You already see it. Yeah? Or this is a huge, This I'm, I would have to lie. It's maybe half year. Yeah, it's six month old, this animal that I took the photo of and um, I don't really do anything special with their diet. So they get pellets, they get whatever you feed for a baby turtle with and they have a massive jaw musculature here. So yeah, and this is a picture from an animal that was um, found in nature. It also has a really wide head. So yeah, I, I think there is something to it um but you can't really just randomly pick specimens but you see the differences when you look at the animals closely yeah um and and when we talk about ontogeny we also see a lot of change in color and the color change is um unique about the species so yeah here it's raniceps now it's ramuti whatever but these always have those four lines, two on the side. So one here and one on the other side, and they have two lines on the dorsal side of the head. So here that's a juvenile, and this is an adult. You still see at least a little bit of a line here and here. And this is what we used to call heliostema. Um, they start off yellow, then they get pretty tan, like here, even may more gray in many cases, but when they are grown up, when they're old, they get white. So no raniceps gets white and no heliostema gets those black stripes. Um, and that's how you can tell these apart. And um, yeah, but you only notice these differences when you are able to either catch an enormous amount of, of specimens in the wild if you can sample babies, juveniles, adults, and old ones, or if you keep them at home for such a long time that you notice how an, indi how an individual is changing. Um, so yeah, that's why current taxonomy of mesoclamys is a, is a mess and it's really uh, difficult to follow if you're not that into 
um, into Toadheads. Actually, that's um, a, a page that I come I copied from a field guide for Peru, and it shows the difference between yeah vermouthy raniteps and teleostema raniteps really well. So again, you see the lines, and then um, you see the overall shell shape, which is a little bit more um, compressed. It's like more rounded than uh, Heliostema. And this is not really good visible here. They have a white tympanum, uh, the, the, um, like, like the ear. It's, it's white in Raniceps, which you also see in the original description. I'll zoom a little bit more in. Wait one more time. So this is the depiction of the um, lectotype. So this is like what the species was described after. And here it's white. Okay. And in Heliostema. Oh, well, we're still zoomed in. Well, that's a little too far. Sorry, guys. Here you see. Oh, I'm too fast and clicking here the tympanum is black yeah hmm. and it's just a subtle really subtle difference but it's fairly consistent i would say and yeah it's not easy but also here's another heliostema this is um what they have and um yeah the, the new TFTSG uh, turtle checklist dives a little bit into the topic, but I totally understand if everybody, anybody who is not like a big fan of uh, South American keelids just shuts off and says, okay, brown turtle. <laughs> the, um, the paper, I, I asked for a paper yesterday. I think that was the one on... They actually, it, it was pretty detailed. I, I didn't expect it. I, I didn't think it was necessarily that much, but they did the, the principal component analysis to kind of collapse a, a bunch of different variables to explain that and then create that morphospace you showed. And then, so with the heliostema, they had a pretty small sample size, which makes me a little bit concerned. But, and I think that, like you said, there's been some changes to this. And then they used the, the it's a linear discriminant analysis and you can assign essentially based on all the samples you have to those groups that you assign in more in the morphospace space based on the pca and they had a hundred percent assignment rate so it seemed like they could distinguish pretty well but it does make me wonder the sample size kind of how that compounds yeah uh, yeah i mean i can go back to that um no wait go back there uh you can distinguish between gibba and the other two pretty well and i mean here yeah this this is where it starts to get a little bit fuzzy i would say um they do uh say in the paper that they like their results but they do um think you should also do some genetics and this is what i also think so what is really desperately needed to sort out taxonomy in, in mesoclemis is that um, somebody does the work and sample all species and sample all museum specimens and then compare what occurs where and then um, we will probably get a better picture because you know 
many mesoclamy species are that old in terms of uh, when they were scientifically described, we can't really use the data that they were given by the original authors. So uh, that's really a, a fun thing. Um, Mesoclamys gibber, the terra typica, where you would say the animal typically is from, it's Patria Ignota, which is Latin for unknown land. So they just found it in the museum and then they, they described it as a new species. And um, with Raniceps, um, the Terra Typica is Para, which nowadays is a federal state in Brazil. But back in the days when Raniceps was described in 1855 or 1856, uh, Para was the name for Belém, which is the city on the far east. And I don't think that Raniceps with white tympanum and the black head stripes occur. So this was probably the port where the animal was originally exported from. And the guy in London who described it just said, oh, well, it's from Para. Okay, all right, I'll put it into the Terra Typica. So um, we have to probably rectify that if the genetics work out. If not, if, if we kind of find out that this, the population from there matches the animal, it's fine with me, then the current situation is right exactly how it is described at the moment, but to be honest, I don't think so. That is, that's pretty interesting. That, that kind of, I guess, you know, the misidentified specimens are just things that it, it really in hindsight is sort of an annoying for taxonomists, especially with cryptic, cryptically diverse species like mesoclimates. Oh, right, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I was curious too about the tuberculate toad-headed turtles. I don't know if you've got much information on them, but I that's one that you don't hear too much about. Yeah. Um, that's actually a funny thing you mentioned that because maybe in America and in Europe they are unrecognized and, and nobody knows them, but in fact, this is the Instagram turtle. So if you uh, search for hashtag Cagado, in, uh, in on Instagram. So Cagado is the Brazilian name for aquatic turtle. A ton of tuberculata will show up because uh, they occur uh, in areas of Brazil where many people live. So there, uh, for example, when I was there in 2020, we stayed in uh, Salvador de Bahia, which is the um, original capital of Brazil. It was it was the capital, but now obviously it's Brasilia. But um, there are 4 million people living in the area and in their waterways, just like you have them in America or in Florida, um, they, they occur there and they just take pictures of a nice aquatic turtle they find. And this happens to be um, tuberculata. So um, Although scientifically not a lot is known and not too many people breed them. I think in America, it's maybe only one or two people who really have them. And in Europe, it's maybe two more, but um, in, in Brazil, they, they are around. Yeah. Unfortunately, you can't really work with them outside of their natural range because uh, as Brazilian species, they are highly protected and you can't really get your hands on some, but um, that was the reason when after I yeah I finished the account in the book, 
I started to looking uh, for some specimens in Europe and now I have a group that consists of three different bloodlines and my goal is to keep and breed them to to have them available in Europe for an extended period yeah and they are also funny in in terms of ecology because um they also occur in a different uh habitat that I would like to show you um they occur in um in a type of habitat that is called restinga or hestinga in in brazilian my brazilian is awful i hope the brazilian watchers don't uh hate message me afterwards <laughs> but uh these habitats are freshwater lagoons right next to the sea so this is the pacific uh, ocean here and there are some sand dunes and then on the other side of the sand dune we find uh tuberculate toad-headed turtles and yeah this this is really unique so this here is a uh, also one of those large lagoons so this is not um like meadow or something this is marshland all of this is filled with water and this is where you find the turtles or <laughs> probably where you don't find the turtles. Actually, you will find them here when they cross a bridge or when they cross a road. Um, wait, I think, yeah, this is also a picture from their habitat. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, these, these habitats, uh, these freshwater lagoons, they are right where many tourists are in Brazil. So um, they often uh, have to yeah, when when new hotels are built, the um, the habitat is gone, and of course the turtles will be gone then. And uh, they are endemic to the Rio San Francisco uh, water basin. Um, and since the Cerrado is a very dry um, habitat, um, the Rio San Francisco is drained a lot, and so there's all I think in addition even hydroelectric dams are being built there. So they they get a lot of pressure, and um, even though they are common now, uh, I could imagine that in the future they will have a hard time surviving in the wild. Yeah. So this is another habitat picture of that. And this is also one of those freshwater lagoons. So uh, the picture you saw initially with the, the ocean in the background, this is I, if I look, if for example, yeah, like if, if the ocean is in my back and I look in the other direction landwards, um, then you see this patch of water here and those white dunes. And on the other side of these white dunes, there's another marsh and this is where the turtles migrate from and, and to it's very interesting the habitat there um i guess we're sort of getting to where we want to kind of transition into the trivia but i i've got i think we've got like two more kind of quick question well maybe <laughs> i'm curious if you can expand upon the i'll be right back i just gotta go i gotta go to the bathroom real quick oh here he, he's <laughs> bathroom break. um <laughs> I'm dealing with like a sickness right now, so I have to, yeah, I have to make he, sure. Yeah, he's got a. Um, so I'm curious if you can expand upon the current taxonomy of, uh, I guess it would be Raniceps, and then the proposal of Wormathine, and kind of go into that a bit, because that's sort of an interesting thing. And then 
I guess after that, maybe talk about the new species, the Gerudi uh, toadhead. Those are like two separate questions. I don't want to, but yeah, the taxonomy is something that it's hard to follow and maybe not interesting for some people, but I think if we make it digestible, sort of, it's something kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I think also uh, Jurutiensis was not really like it, it, uh, many people probably don't even know about it because it's been published so recently. Um, where do we start? So um, actually, yeah, here it's probably a good idea. So we have that discussion about uh, the difference between Heliostema and Raniceps. Um, and yeah, right now the, the current situation is that we have Phrynops vermuthii, which is the name for the like Western Amazonians. Ah, wait, I have a better slide here. That's, that's probably a good slide. So you have uh, Mesoclamys vermuthii. This is the, the, the brown area. And um, we have Mesoclamys raniceps, which is the, the green area. The blue one is Mesoclamys nasuta. So we know that they are distinct and they are also biogeographically distinct because this is the Guyana shield. And so uh, there's a, like a whole different ecoregion with different species occurring there. But we don't really know the delimitation um, of yeah the, the Western and the Eastern toad heads. Um, yeah, they, it's always said that they occur in sympathy, but um, I gotta admit, I don't really know if ever anybody has ever found these two species in the same habitat. So they're, they probably share some areas, but not the same habitat, I would say. Um, and in addition to these two, um, there's now a third species, which is called Mesoclamys urotiensis. And it's supposed to be different. Um, also due to the fact that urotiensis they don't have an ossified bridge and Eurotea, I think it's somewhere here. I have to cheat and look on Google Maps real quick. But uh, I, I think it's somewhere here. It's somewhere in the east. I think this is probably Manaus. Um, and, and somewhere east of Manaus, there's Eurotea. There's It's a city that the species is named after. Euro and um, yeah, uh, I do have to admit that I don't have seen any Eurotiensis in person yet because yeah, they have been uh, kept under um, yeah. Nobody really knew, knew about them until they were described. I can, this is Google Maps and here we have Manaus in the center of the Amazon. So here somewhere there's Peru. This is the mouth of the Amazon and Yuruti is there. And this is where the new species is from. Uh, I can't also really show you any pictures because just like you said, uh, like already mentioned, um, the species is fairly new, but, um, yeah, time will tell how different they really are because uh, the species description has been made solely on morphological characters and there's not 
I mean, yes, there is genetics involved, but um, I'm not a specialist in genetics, but at least to me, there were some open questions left. And so um, I would like to sh uh, share this study here where turtles were sampled along the Rio Madeira. The Rio Madeira goes from Manaus, from the center of Amazonia here to the Bolivian border. And we have two areas where they really sampled a lot. So one is near Manaus and one is near to the border. Uh, and when you look at the animals that were found, they are different. So this here are the animals from central Amazonia, from Manaus. They all have dark tympanums. Um, they are white and no stripes present. So they are either Heliostemma or Raniceps or Eurotiensis. And when you get close to the border, you see specimens with stripes and even freckles. Uh, you see light tympanums like here. So these are what we would call Vermuthii now. Um, and they are different, but yeah, the the takeaway message from all of that is uh, people, sorry, are currently throwing around names, but um, at least I am not too sure which name to use at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope that kind of answered your question or maybe um, got some more insight for you, but um, yeah. I, I don't have the description of Eurotiensis at hand, I must admit, and uh, due to, to the fact that my book was published in 2019, of course, I, I don't even have any picture of them in there. But yeah, maybe that's something for the second edition. <laughs> All right, so yeah, unfortunately, uh, Michael had to leave early for something, and we're, uh, we're about, I think we're about nearing like an hour and 30 minutes, this is where we want to um, keep this episode under. So, we have one weird question um, from Greg's Turtle Haven. He wants you to explain why they are called twist neck turtles. <laughs> That's a very good question, and uh, to to make the question even better, um, in German they are called uh, Rothalsplatschildkröte, which the the literal translation is red necked uh, flat turtle. So I don't know why they should be, uh, why they should have a red neck, and I don't know why they the neck should be twisted. So sometimes the the, the common names are just completely random. Maybe uh, I don't know the, the guy who who saw them first and gave them their common name was surprised by the fact that they turned their head around because since they're Achilles. Um, Maybe the, the, the German guy who named them thought that, you know, that the yellow color may be a remnant of something that once was red. You know, when when specimens at the museum are stored in ethanol, they tend to um, have, they, they get discolored. And so the guy saw the yellow turtle and thought, oh, it maybe was red. So I can only speculate on that. Um, but yeah, I really don't know for sure. 
Interesting. So, so their neck movement isn't like any different than other side neck turtles. Then. No, definitely not. Right. Yeah. So for mating, they do head bobbing and also right. like S shaped waving, just like other keelids do. But right. it's not like they twist their head upside down or something like that. Cool. I apologize for my. Yeah. So I, I, I do unfortunately, you have any diagrams of like uh, the skull structures of some of the larger headed species? I don't know. It's just an odd question, but. Uh, wait, give me a second. Now I have to get up to uh, my office and I'm kind of a book messy. And, and um, I, I also have a collection of, of vintage turtle drawings and stuff like this. So what I can show you, I hope is visible. Um, oh, yeah, I can are, see it real well. There are some old um, books where you they um, show some um, toad-headed um, skulls. I would oh, have to look for the reference. Um, I think it's from John Edward Gray from 18, I don't know how when. Um, and to, I think there should be some nice head drawings in the Peter Pritchard book from 1984 from in the Turtles of Venezuela. I don't have it at hand right now, but um, yeah, that's where you could look th these up. So I don't have any right now. In preparation or I don't have any prepared right now but um, if you have the Turtles of Venezuela book you can look into it and um, yeah. yeah that's that's one I've been trying to get for a long time it's just hard to find now and it's expensive but uh, oh. I like the I find it so interesting how the, the lack of like the zygomatic arch on the those skulls while compared to like uh, I mean this is just excuse it was like a Kalydra skull for an instance, and you can kind of see, yeah, like the, those processes are missing. So it's just it, it gives the skull a completely different look without like, yeah, yeah, right. It's it's really it's it's really wide, but there's there the, the processes are almost not visible. Yeah, they're really small. Uh, oh, go I, on. I think I I think I know where I have to Pritchard bookstore. I'll be back in thirty seconds. So, boys, don't don't take antibiotics on empty stomach. Apparently, that's a bad thing. So, apologize, I didn't find it in my hurry. Um, one more chance here. No, sorry, that's disappointing. Okay, sorry for the bad preparation, guys. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, I really like the presentation. I think the the visual the visuals are going to be really good for our viewers because you know these are animals that are easy to look up or understand. Yeah, I think the visuals were really, really beneficial here compared to a lot of times we're talking about more well-known or like American species. People right. already know what they look like, but this is, uh, these animals are completely foreign to many of our viewers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're probably foreign to to a lot of people, even probably where they uh, occur because they are so secretive, they probably don't see them all the time. I mean, except for tuberculata, which, as I already mentioned, are pretty dominant um, on yeah, Instagram and, and also iNaturalist. All right. Do we have any more questions or do we want to get into the trivia section? Uh, um, that's Let's that's the only going on the question. trivia. We just had the, the one. All right. So do um, we want to like do uh, maybe three on our side and three uh, from... Yeah, that sounds, that sounds yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, we should do that. Keep it kind of short. All right. So... 
I guess I'll explain kind of what we do. Unless I don't know if Michael messaged you in advance, but uh, towards the end of each episode, we'll do like a, a like a segment where it's typically like us versus whoever the guest is, and we try and just ask questions that have some sort of relevance, but can also be obscure and uh, kind of like stump each other, but not. I don't know. We not go too crazy with it, and like so, just so our viewers can learn something and have a little fun too. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Michael mentioned something. Um... I, I hope my my questions are not too specific, but yeah, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> oh, it's, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun. Uh, I guess so. We'll come up with three questions. I guess you can come up with three, and we'll just do okay. an alternate. Like one of us will start, and the next will go with one. So I came up. This isn't this isn't a super bad one, but it's kind of unrelated to what we talked about. Uh, which Graptomy species has the largest skull? The largest skull? Yeah. L I, like. I would. I'd say guess. like widest. Yeah. So then it's uh, uh, Barbara, I guess, isn't it yep. the largest anyway? Yeah, but like largest skull and body size. By yeah. Far, yeah. Too. Like, it's a significant difference. Yeah. So to precise, I would have to say females, right? Yep. Big yeah. females with like seventy millimeter plus head width, like it's up there. Yeah. I gotta admit, I'm a very good um, a very great um crop team is fan um and i happen yeah. to live only a few hours away from graz where dr peter prashak is living oh, at okay. and sense. yeah i i think you might be uh, familiar with his revision of the genus sure. and he's a crop team guy for i don't know how many decades so i was able to to see a lot of different crop species not in the wild but at, he, at his place and it's really awesome yeah so yeah. large Barbary females are really cool. Oh, they're they're some of my favorites. But uh, yeah, so I get we'll count that. You got that one. And all right, you want to hit us with one? Yeah, sure. Um, so of course, since we talked about twist neck turtles, um, I have to ask a, a twist neck question. Um, so I said twist necks only lay one egg or maximum two eggs per clutch. These eggs they are really really huge, like. The female is like this, and the egg is a third of the female's body. So, um, how does the egg get out of the body? Do you know that? Is there, oh, unless you go on YouTube, one that I was gonna. I would assume it's similar to like rhinoclemmies. Is it some sort of plast like kinesis in the carapace or plastron that allows, that makes room temporarily for the egg to leave? Yeah, yeah, probably. It's, it's basically like that. Um, and it even goes that far that uh, the bridge is connected by a ligament and the ligament expands okay. when the female is gravid. So you see actually that the female is gravid if suddenly it's Bridges higher than yeah. it was. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. But but that, that makes sense because I'd, I'd read that I'd read about that in rhinoclemmies and I, and I assumed it was a similar uh, or I thought it would be safe to infer it was a similar process that would allow yeah. that to happen. Yeah, very good. Yeah. All right. Uh, Ken, did you want to go ahead and give yours? Yeah. All right. Sure. Um, my question is the plural Dira suborder can be traced back to which geologic time period or time periods? Oh, I'm so bad with that. Um, I, I, I don't know. I have to guess here. It's I, I will just randomly shout out 
a, a term that I think is passed yesterday. So maybe it's like the Ju Jurassic period. Yeah, yeah, Jurassic yeah, and Cretaceous. I know Jurassic and Cretaceous, so that, that's my periods I can go for. It's, it was 50-50. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, now I, I also have um, one more really specific one about um, anatomy or physiology better. Um, so I mentioned that uh, Claudius can move their eyes independently of each other. Mm -hmm. Do you know any more species of turtles that can do that? Any ideas, boys? Hold <laughs> up, I'm thinking. I'm, um... I was about really? to say chameleons and realized that wasn't a turtle. Close, <laughs> 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 close. <laughs> Uh, I can give oh. you a hint, though, if you like. If you give us a hint, that might that yeah. might help. So you guys are um, in connection with the turtle room, and there's a guy of the turtle room that has some googly turtles. Is it Geomida? Yeah, right. So Spangler Eye can also focus on this eye and go to the other side with this eye. I, feeling, yeah, cause that, I was like, <laughs> oh, you're probably talking about Anthony, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the Geomida. That's yeah, actually really uh, interesting. I think that our viewers are really going to like that. So, well, yeah, it's, it's not like a chameleon, like completely different, but you yeah, see that yeah. focus somewhere else. Right on. Uh, so, our last one uh, what extinct fish clade likely led to modern tetrapods? What extinct fish? Like a uh, group or clade likely led to modern tetrapods. <sighs> Now I have to Google the German name Quastenflosser. Silacanthus. Uh, uh, is this the... I hope it's the uh, correct English name. Wait. Let's see if the English one... Yeah, Kellerkanth is. Yeah, I don't know if uh, this is. Do I, I believe it's right? uh, the rip Ripidistia. Some, uh, they're both Sarcopterygii, so like you're, you're kind of on the same track. It's like the ah, okay, fish yeah. is like. So you were you were close, but I mean, or maybe it is. I don't know if if, if I'm wrong. You, you know, you can blame it on Doctor no, 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 right? Mark since he taught me it. But I'm quite sure you're yeah. probably. More correct than I am. I, it was just I'm just firing out yeah. what I thought could be correct, but my gotcha. paleontological horizon is Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> I think like the new uh, Jurassic World Dominion is coming out this summer. So, oh yeah, I'm looking forward to, look that, forward yeah. to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, so, I have a six-year-old son, and I'm thinking if I can take him, but uh, I guess my wife won't allow it. <laughs> Is, um, All right. Yeah, you got your last question. Yes, I, I have one. It, yeah, it's probably easy, but yeah, you know, I'm from Austria, from from Middle Europe, and we don't have a very high diversity in, in colonians, but um, we do have one species, and it actually occurs in Vienna. So, um, do you know the name of that species that we have in Austria? 
Is it the uh, oh, wait, do one of you guys got it or you want me to? I think I've got it down to the genus, but I don't, I don't know like what species is, uh, it would be. Is it the European pond turtle, Emmys Circularis? Yeah, right, right, yeah. We, um, one of our neighboring countries, they have testudos as well. They, they have um, tortoises, but yeah, we only have that aquatic one, right? Yeah, right. just about wraps it up here. Um, thanks for coming on. I know that it's been like almost an hour and a half, so we really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to yeah, come think, talk to I think we had a really, turtle nerds. A really beneficial discussion today. That's a, a very unlike a like obscure group of turtles that a lot of people that a lot of our viewers are not going to know much about and uh, even us a lot of us are not as well versed on them as we should be but uh yeah that was it was a really good conversation so thank you for coming on and uh yeah thanks for the invitation uh, it was fun doing that i'm i'm old i had never did something like this before and i kind of like it i must say yeah yeah we um, great it's been a. Uh, it's just been gaining momentum every time. I'm, I just get every week we do one of these, and it's, it just gets even better. So, yeah, nice. So, yeah, um, have a lot of success with that. Um, uh, I hope you have some interesting guests in the future, and I'll definitely be watching. Awesome. And uh, is your? I don't. I actually don't have your book yet, which I really need. Now that I saw this, I'm like, now that we had this conversation, I'm like, wow, I really, I really need to. Yeah, where can that. people find it? Yeah, um, I think there's one or two sellers in America that have it because um, it was um, published by Chimera. Wait, there is it. It's a German specialized. Uh, it, it's a specialized book um, publishing company and bookstore. So you can order it from Chimera internationally, or from American dealers. Or I can also. I have a few of these at home and I'm happy to sell, um, sign them or, or dedicate them to you. Um, I just have to, you know, I have the regular postage rate. So shipping to America is probably $25 only for shipping. But maybe if, uh, I don't know, like two or three people at the same time want the book, we can ship them there to one point and then you distribute it on on your own because then you can save some on shipping i guess so yeah or whoever is interested um message me on on instagram for example and if you're in austria you can have some coffee at my place or or a beer or two and then you'll get the book as well no problem awesome. we'll uh we'll we'll link your social media to all this too yeah thanks guys yeah, I'll, I'll probably direct message you after this because I'm, I'm interested in getting the book. So, Yeah, sure. No, we can work something out, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Well, so I guess we'll end the recording. In a sec. Yeah. Great. Thanks for coming on. It was, uh, Thanks, guys. It was great you know, seeing, seeing all these turtles. I, I learned a lot. I This is a group of turtles I know nothing about, so I was very, very glad to see this. Um, that said, this episode is concluded. I'm going to end the recording, and there you go.